Good morning, church. I'm humbled every single time I get a chance to stand up here and preach the word of God to you. If you have your Bibles with you, and you would turn with me to the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, and we're going to spend our time looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we will have it up on the screen for you to follow along in that way as well. But I'd ask today that you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us before we go any farther. Heavenly Father, we are gathered together in this place at this time to worship you. May we fall more in love with you as we're reminded of your truths. Focus our minds, ready our hearts. Yes, we want to know you more, but may this this knowledge that we seek be done not to, to puff ourselves up, but may the knowledge that we seek drop from our heads into our hearts and from our hearts into our hands and feet. We ask that you would change us today. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we got some work to do, so let's jump right in. Verse 25, we'll have the text up on the screen periodically uh, to, so you can follow along in that way as well. Right out of the gate here in verse 25, this lawyer was attempting to put Jesus to the test. Now maybe you may want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you think this guy that is testing Jesus just must simply not know who it is he's speaking to at all. But he's a lawyer, and in ancient Israel, a lawyer or a scribe's job was to study God's law and interpret it to others. It's because of this that in verse 26, Jesus asked him to answer his own question from what he already knows is written in the law. You know the law, so what does it say? Then in verse 27, he answers both Jesus and his own question. 
with the two greatest commandments in the Bible. Let's read verse 27 and 28 again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So love God with everything you have, every single fiber in your being, love him, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. The lawyer knew the right answer to this question, but it appears here that that Jesus' response to him kind of cuts into him because he tells him that he knows the answer. Yes, the lawyer knows the correct answer, but then Jesus says, now go do it. Because there's a very big difference between knowing something and doing something. There's a very big difference between knowing something theologically and then actually doing it practically. Head knowledge is easily obtained. If you want to know the right words to say, if you want to know the right answers to the questions, this really takes very little from us. Truthfully, it takes just a little bit of our time and a little bit of our effort. But to actually know and put what we know, that knowledge, into action. Now, this is far weightier because this takes our lives because we will get it wrong. We will slip up. We will make mistakes. But to not just revert to telling each other what to do, but then to not actually practically have it spilling out of our lives or when we screw up and then not being transparent enough to admit that we've slipped up, that we've got knocked down and to not get back up. To actually have this knowledge of what we should do spill out into our lives. This takes our lives. In verse 29, we see the lawyer is feeling convicted by this exchange between himself and Jesus. Probably, probably most definitely regretting his decision to stand up and try to test Jesus here. I read this in a commentary, a little tip for this guy. It's a little bit late, but his attempt to test Jesus, he said, if you're gonna test Jesus, don't stand up. Don't stand up and try to test Jesus as as this lawyer did because if you're gonna do it, if you're going to test Jesus, you should at least stay seated. This way you have a shorter distance to fall when you fail. But our lawyer here is feeling convicted. He's feeling a little bit guilty because he already knows the right answer. He knows what he should do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus has just told him that he knows the right answer, but then actually tells him to do it. So I'm sure this man, all of these things are flooding into his mind all the times that he's failed at this. Failed at loving God with his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the times in which he's not loved his neighbor well, or even at all. So what the lawyer does in response is what many of us, when we find ourselves feeling backed into a corner, will do to try to find a way out, look for some kind of loophole. That's what we see him trying to do here. Find some some loophole to let himself off the hook on why he hasn't been living up to these commandments. So grasping at straws, he jumps to a follow-up question. In verse 29, it says, desiring to justify himself, 
he asked, and who is my neighbor? Because maybe if he truly doesn't know who his neighbor is, then he has this reasonable deniability that stands in his defense as to why he hasn't been loving his neighbor at all. This morning, I want to answer two questions. One is, who is our neighbor? And two is, what does it look like to love them? Who is our neighbor and what does it look like to love them? Jesus answers these two questions in this parable that we're going to look at. Let's look at verse 30, because here Jesus begins by painting the scene. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now this road from Jerusalem to Jericho still exists today. It's an 18-mile stretch of road that connects the holy city of Jerusalem down to Jericho near the Dead Sea. And if you were to make this trip, not only would you be walking 18 miles in mostly desert-like conditions, you also would be descending down more than a half mile in elevation. And given this isolated terrain, people were, were easy targets for robbers. The road is surrounded by, by many really rocky areas that are perfect for these robbers to steal everything that you have. From, they can steal something from a traveler and then go back and hide in those rocks again and never be found. And when Jesus is painting this picture in this parable, all of those who are listening to him would have completely understood this. They, they know the dangers that came from making this 18-mile this journey. It was not some big leap to picture a man who had gotten jumped, all of his possessions being stolen, and then just being left for dead. This happened often to these people on this journey. And what Jesus does next is, in the next two verses, is tell of the two guys who walk by this dying man. And not just any people. These guys were guys that said that they loved God. Let's set it up again. We have this Jewish man who's been attacked, stripped, robbed on this treacherous road. This man is half dead, and if nobody comes to his aid, he will surely die. But things start, start off kind of looking good for our unfortunate friend. The first guy to walk by is a priest. Talk about good fortune. These were basically the pastors of the day. And the second guy who walks by is a Levite who is responsible for kind of being to assist the priests in services. So you got a pastor and an associate pastor as the first two people to walk by you as you lay dying on the road. They probably are on their way back from performing a service in God's temple up in Jerusalem. And if you were putting your money on who would you would feel confident, what kind of person would you feel confident that someone that would stop and lend a hand? One of your top five answers would have to be a pastor, right? Like they would have to feel something. They would have to stop by. But let's see what happens. Verse 31 and 32. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So probably the biggest question that comes off the heels of finding out that these two guys that say that they love God would both be unwilling to stop and help their fellow brother, who is very much in need, is why? 
Why would they both do this? Why would they both pass by on the other side of the road? Why would these two guys who both know what the scripture says and know fully that they should love one another, why would they walk by? Now, we don't get an answer in the story to this question. Jesus doesn't tell us precisely why these two men saw an opportunity to help someone in need and instead both chose to walk by. But we can, however, infer from the text what possible reasons may have crept into their minds. The first one is fear. Fear of the unknown. I mean, this isn't much of a stretch. Both of these men have just witnessed the aftermath of what had happened to this guy from a robber. So who is to say that those same robbers weren't just hiding behind some rocks and going to do the same thing to them as they stopped and helped? So what very well may have stopped them from loving their neighbor was fear of the unknown, fearing what would happen if they actually did stop and love their neighbor. But how often do we find ourselves in that place today? Fearing what could happen or simply just expecting the worst and deciding so the worst doesn't come true, we just simply won't step out in faith. This hits close to home in my life. And introverts here today may, this may resemble something in your own life. From the first day of following Jesus, from the first day that I started following Jesus all the way up until this very minute, I've had this internal struggle between loving my neighbor and being an introvert. For a lot of years, I simply just let myself off the hook thinking that there are those people out there who get filled up by talking to other people, that they must be the ones that the Bible is referring to Still to this day, if I don't take steps in my own life to be out in community with others, be intentional with the time that I am around others, I, I just will retreat into the solace of the familiar. In fact, I can, I can easily use this church building, these walls, as kind of my own personal fortress to help keep those who may be more difficult out and simply stay inside of these walls because it's easy. Only talk to people who already claim to be followers of Jesus because that's, that's comfortable. But here's the thing. There's no loophole. There's no, no loophole out of loving your neighbor. There's no one type of person that should love their neighbor and the other type who, yeah, you don't have to. You're fine. No loophole for any of us, no matter the difficulty. We must love our neighbor. I was reminded of a time when I was in high school. I attended this conference in Chicago. That the main goal of the conference was to help normalize talking about our faith with others. Now, for an introvert, the idea of walking up to a stranger on the streets of Chicago and talking to them about Jesus was probably just below the fear of falling into a pit of snakes and just like hanging out for a while. I was terrified out of my mind. 
I remember vividly driving toward downtown Chicago where we were to be paired up with a partner and sent out to have conversations with strangers about our faith. And on our journey downtown, with my heart pounding out of my chest, I had this bright idea. I had it figured out. I was going to pair myself up with the most extroverted person on the bus. Because if I did this, there was a chance that I could talk to absolutely nobody. So that's what I did. I partnered up with the most extroverted person that I could, and we were sent out for four hours to go talk to complete strangers on the streets of downtown Chicago about Jesus. It seriously still blows my mind that I signed up to do this in the first place, knowing who I am and the fact that that's just crazy anyways. But my plan worked. For three and a half hours... And I could have run out the clock. I know I could have. The last half hour, we passed by a woman sitting on a park bench. And we actually walked on by. It had been a long day of watching someone else talk and standing there. But it was this day that the conviction of not loving my neighbor started to take a hold of me. So we actually turned around. And I'm still not really sure that I'm going to be the one leading this conversation because I just, that doesn't, it's not my jam. But when we got up to her, I jumped in and began this conversation. Now, nothing miraculous happened here except one thing. Except the fear of the unknown. The fear of the unknown response of this person was shattered. I'd love to tell you that when that was shattered, that fear of the unknown was shattered, that it never came back. Still does. Still have this internal struggle. But I think for me, it was just the beginning of not constantly letting my fear cripple me from moving toward people. Maybe it was fear for our first two men in this story as well. Or maybe it was inconvenient. Maybe it was just simply inconvenient. It's likely that both of these men had just finished leading a church service. So they're walking home, ready to go crash, spend some time with their family, grab some food, take a God-exalting nap. And then the idea of how much time it would take for them to help that person in need may have crept in. This may have been enough of a reason to to pretend not to see or to walk on by. Have you ever driven by someone broke down on the side of the road and think to yourself that you would stop and help or at least check on them if you didn't have dinner plans. Maybe you were already late for your dinner plans. Or if you did stop, there's a chance that Target would be closed before you got there. So you simply just drove on by. Inconvenience plays more of a role in our decision making than we may like to think. So maybe it was fear 
Maybe it was inconvenient. But whatever the reason, the first two men passed on by. Jesus is showing us two men who would claim that they love God and that they would know that they are to love their neighbor have chosen not to fulfill the second greatest commandment. Which begs the question, if we're unwilling to love our neighbor, do we in fact love God at all? Because you cannot separate the two. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. We see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. In this commandment we have found from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So in this parable, Jesus has now shown us exactly what not to do. He's shown us how not to love our neighbor. But in the next few verses, we'll see an example of what it looks like to actually love your neighbor. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Who is a Samaritan? <clears throat> to note, the first thing to note about the Samaritan is that they are hated by Jews. They were, they were half Jewish blood, half foreign blood, so in the sight of the Jews, a Samaritan was a second-class citizen. So this man who's dying on the road that he sees, the next man headed toward him, being a Samaritan, there's chances that this guy that's just laying on the road more than likely hates the person who's walking up's guts. And in any normal circumstance, he wouldn't talk to him, let alone want to be near him. And the feeling that that dying man felt towards him would not have been unknown to the Samaritan either. He knew the value through which that dying man looked to him on what he gave him. So if anyone would have been justified in walking around this Samaritan, around this man was the Samaritan. Anyone who would be justified in walking around this man, it was the Samaritan. But that's not the response we see. Let's read verse 33 again. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That's it. He had compassion. What does, the, what does the Samaritan do to the, the, the man dying on the road? He doesn't go around him. He doesn't worry about what the robbers may, may, the, if the robbers may come back. He doesn't care if it doesn't fit into his schedule. When he saw him, no, he had compassion. This is how we love our neighbor. By having compassion for them. Because loving your neighbor isn't simply being nice to someone who you live near. That's part of it. Loving your neighbor isn't inviting your friends into your home. That's part of it. Loving your neighbor isn't just inviting someone to church. That's part of it. No, loving your neighbor is having compassion for them. To have real compassion is to empathize with someone who is suffering and to feel compelled to reduce the suffering. Compassion is when you empathize with someone who is suffering and feel compelled 
to reduce that suffering. To further help us understand what it looks like to have compassion, there are several places where we see this in the Bible. The first time we see it is in the feeding of 5,000. Jesus has been around this crowd of people and he's attempted to withdraw from the crowd, but they follow after him anyways. And Jesus sees that the crowd wants to be near him. Jesus sees that they are hungry and he had compassion and performs a miracle that feeds all of these people with five loaves and two fish. Jesus sees a need. He sees that they are hungry and steps in and feeds them. He sees the need and he does something about it. We see this again in the story of the the prodigal son, the story where a son goes to his father and asks for his inheritance, which is the equivalent of saying that he wishes that his father was dead. And when he receives what he's asking for, he goes off to a far-off city and squanders the entire thing as the Bible puts it, on reckless living. Soon after, he spent everything. A severe famine comes into the land. And he's out of money, so he has to go find a job. And so he's sent working. And his job is to, to feed pigs. And things have gotten so bad at this point that he is starting to envy the slop that the pigs are eating. And finally, coming to his senses a little bit, the son thinks to himself that those that work for his father eat far better than he is able to in the city. So he decides to travel back to his father's house. And he spends his entire journey practicing what he's going to say to him. Because the last time that he spoke to him, he said, I wish you're dead. So he's got to figure some stuff out. He's got to figure out exactly what he's saying. And he does it. He says, he's going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm not I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. This might work. But how does the father respond in this story? While his son was still a long way off, the father saw him, and the Bible said he had compassion. He had compassion. He didn't wait for him to get up to the house. No, he takes off into a dead sprint and throws his arms around his son and throws a party to celebrate that his son has returned. He had compassion. So let's jump back to our questions that we're going to answer this morning. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Our neighbor isn't simply someone who we live near. A neighbor is someone that God has put into your life. Someone who is a part of your regular rhythm. And as we see in the story of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor isn't necessarily just those that are in our life that we like. They aren't those that are just easy to be around. The Samaritan loved his neighbor when his neighbor hated his guts. Friend or enemy, those that are in your path are your neighbor. That's who they are. But what does it look like to love them? What does it look like to love your neighbor? These are, there's three things that I think we must do to love our neighbor. That we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see this in, in when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we see this from the father in the prodigal son. 
What does it look like to love your neighbor? The first thing is that we see them. The first thing is we see them, we notice them. We look up from our phone. We go to places where people are. We walk around our neighborhood. We see them. The second thing we do is we have compassion for them. We see them, we have compassion for them, we see a need and we do something to help them. You may think that most of the people in your life aren't in a position like this dying man in our story. Because if someone in your life was dying on the side of the road, you definitely would stop and help them. But if those neighbors who are in each one of your lives do not know Jesus, they are. They are dying. They are dying on the side of the road, desperately in need of rescue, desperately in need of Jesus. Church, let us show those in our life Jesus. So loving our neighbor looks like seeing them, having compassion for them, and then doing something. It can be easy for us just to feel for a person's situation. We'll see a story, we'll see a need, and we feel for that situation. We feel compassion for them. But just as we said earlier that if we love God, we will in turn love our neighbor in the same way if we feel compassion for our neighbors. But never let it move us to action. What good does that do? Let us learn from the good Samaritan and what he does. Starting back in verse 33, let's look at what the Samaritan does. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. But he doesn't stop there. His compassion pushes him into action immediately. Verses 34 and 35 says, He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan sees him, he has compassion for him, and then he does something. This is what it looks like to love our neighbor. Our calling, our mission in life is to love God and to love our neighbor. To love God and to love our neighbor. We can pretend to have it all together while we sit in a pew on Sunday or while we impress each other with our knowledge of Scripture but mission exposes our inadequacies and our need for grace. Don't miss this. We can pretend all we want to have it together. We can have it all together while sitting on a pew on Sunday or while trying to impress each other with how much we know about what the Bible says, but mission exposes our inadequacies and our need for grace. What do we see in verse 36 and 37? Because Jesus asks the question of the lawyer after telling him this parable. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Church, may we go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be people who love others.
the way that you loved us. We ask that you would help grow us to love you more. May we have compassion on those that you have put in our path. Reminded that we were dying without hope, but you had compassion. You sent your son to the world to be our rescue. Grow our desire to see the city around us changed by the beautiful gospel truth. We love you more than anything. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Hey, we're going to pray for Mike as he goes out. Uh, If you didn't hear, if you don't know, uh, quick synopsis. Mike is heading back to Michigan, back home where he's from originally. Uh, Pastor with his dad at the church there as associate pastor. Uh, Mike's ultimate calling is to lead a church, uh, and he's going to get the opportunity to train well to do that uh, by doing this more and more. The thing that he loves, preaching God's word, which is fantastic. Uh, I'm going to pray for Mike as he goes. And just remember this, after service, Mike is a big fan of hugging. So give him as many hugs as you want as he leaves. I think that's what you specifically asked for. Oh, yeah, that sounds yeah, right. That's, that that sounds, sounds about right, yeah. if you know Mike at all. Uh, no, church... Uh, if you feel compelled, uh, extend a hand. Uh, we're going to have some time after this uh, to do the children's ministry and everything else, but um, take some time. Uh, say goodbye to Mike as he goes. The U-Haul is packed, right? You got 5% left? 5% left. 5% yeah. left to throw in there. Always. We have all been there. <laughs> uh, church, if you feel extend a hand, pray with me. Father, uh, we ask that as Mike goes on to his next calling, as he is stationed to shepherd your people, may this be his call, that he is to love you and love others. This sermon that he preached today for us was first preached to him. It is evident, Father, that he cares so much about your church and your kingdom. He wants to see it expressed everywhere he goes. Father, we thank you, and we honor what has been done through the ministry of Mike here at Arise. We thank you that he was in a position to do so. We will miss him, Father, but we are ultimately joyful. Hardest thing about your church is that it is like the wind, your spirit moves, and where it moves, we move. So, Father, we ask you to give him assurance. We ask to give peace, confidence, as he proclaims the gospel every single time he gets a chance. Son's holy and precious name I pray, amen. Church, would you stand with me? Mike's gonna give us a benediction as we go today. Church, we are called to love God and to love our neighbor. As we go from this place, may we see others because we have been seen. May we have compassion for others the way in which we have received compassion. May our compassion drive us to do something as Jesus was compelled by compassion into action by dying force on the cross. As we go, may we be, may we be ex- excited by your word, excited and humbled by the fact that you loved us so greatly. And may we go and do likewise.